This is Receipts, a dating podcast with evidence. I'm your host, Jenny Gorlick, and with the help of professional daters, we unpack the subtext of texts, DMs, emails, pretty much anything you can screenshot. I interview comedians about their dating lives, put together panels of experts to get to the bottom of age-old questions like, when does cuffing season begin and end? How do I answer my hinge prompts? And should I text him back? We hear your questions and we've got plenty of answers. And listeners can even DM me their receipts for advice. Listen literally anywhere you listen to podcasts. New episodes on Thursdays. You better not swipe left on this podcast. Welcome to The Luminaries with David Odyssey. This week, a celebration of all things Aquarius, including Gina Davis and Alejandro Hodorowski, a memoriam to Cloris Leachman, the goddess bunny, and Sophie, me talking about why Nicole Kidman should not play Lucille Ball, and, as always, a screed about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and how Ryan Murphy has, once again and forevermore, ruined my life. Thanks for listening. First of all, let me just say, I think for the first time in the history of Homo Sapiens, I have gotten my mic to be somewhat acceptable. Um, I'm sure it's still going to be awful as it always is on this podcast, but I have made a quantum leap in understanding the way these goddamn Blue Yeti microphones work. First of all, I just want to reiterate, once again, I am the talent. I am not a sound designer. I am the talent. Um, you know, Kalela once said when I saw her at the New Yorker Festival and I asked her um, when she started taking herself seriously as an artist, she said it was when she assembled her team. She, Well, that's not what she said. She said she has a team who allows her to be the artist she wants to be, first of all. Secondly, she said that black artists are held to a higher rigor than white artists, which... <laughs> K.O. fatality that and by the way she did not blink she held eye contact with me the whole time and I felt myself um being disintegrated uh by god (sighs) she's incredible um she is one by the way she does not owe us anything if she wants to release her next album in 50 years that's fine because take me apart and the remixes and the music videos she did her her duty. Um, she is a Gemini. Again, I just want to say, you know, I'm I'm getting some heat from the Geminis in my life. Um, I love you all, and I celebrate you. I think, I think a lot of things, but you know, I n- no one could be more powerful than a Gemini, especially one like Kalela. The other thing I want to say is that I think people who do YouTube tutorials, especially YouTube tutorials on YouTube, uh, YouTube tutorials on the technology required to make YouTube tutorials, which means to say YouTube tutorials on Yeti microphones. I do think these people are, you know, they're not intelligent psychopaths because that would uh, give them kind of a Hannibal Lecter dandyism. It's more like, um, it's more like in a previous life, these people probably would have, uh, you know, been been the the sweet the the operators of the gas chambers. So just to get more Gemini stuff out of the way, first of all, I have had. And I mean this because Mark Stoll, uh, who is a beloved previous guest and one of my dearest, dearest friends and a Gemini is listening. And I think he's going to think I'm dragging him. But this is actually not about him. This is about multiple Geminis in my life. I'm seeing a lot of Geminis against or Geminis critiquing Fran Leibowitz, which is fine. She doesn't care. 
But uh, I had a conversation with a two-time previous guest, Dexter Driscoll, about it. And we were talking about how Geminis love duality and Geminis love that, like, there's two sides to every story. You know, like, I, I have some other Gemini friends who love to, like, explain to me, like, Trumpers, they're not all bad. Well, you know, whatever. Okay. Um, the issue with Fran is that she's a Scorpio. She's a fixed sign. And... Scorpio is all about truth and like definitive truth or uh, or Scorpio is about they know the definitive truth. So they're going to tell a perfect lie. So when Fran is spending seven episodes like saying this is this, this is this, this is wrong, this is right. um, A lot of people I know with Gemini placements in in my life are like. I don't like this um, because it, they and Dexter put it really well, which is like she doesn't allow for discourse. Um, she just puts out statements. I, um, as a Libra moon and an Aquarius rising, so as a Libra moon who is always trying to like make everyone happy and like see see both balance both ends of whatever. I am invigorated. And, you know, I'm a Taurus son, but I'm really only coming into that now. You know, this is my year of pleasure. Um, I am invigorated by Fran having a definitive voice and making clear and powerful statements. Like, I get off on that, and I want that for myself. Um, so, you know, do with that what you will. Speaking of Libras, so obviously... I've been growing my hair out, uh, inspired by Patrick Swayze, who is, I, I would say, maybe history's greatest Libra besides Anna Nicole Smith. But I have another one for the list. I'm watching Search Party. Okay. So I have been watching it from the beginning. I couldn't watch season three when it first aired because it was too reminiscent of Goldberg family history, frankly. And uh, too many people, it, it was just a lot during a pandemic, uh, to see every person you've ever met in Brooklyn uh, on screen. But I recently caught up on it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. Uh, Michaela Watkins is great. Used to go to synagogue with her. Okay. So I'm watching season four. I'm not done yet. But I am. When I see Susan Sarandon on a screen, let me just tell you something. I am reinvigorated. I am I am ebullient. I am full of life. I feel the vim and vigor. Um coursing through my veins we're going to talk about my circulatory system uh in a minute and my chi but susan sarandon is incredible okay susan sarandon all right thelma and louise i know that there's some movies that are like in the canon that you're never going to see because you know you'll be miserable watching them I am telling you, Thelma and Louise is not that, actually. Thelma and Louise, you watch it and you're like, oh, this is what it feels like to be changed from the inside out, uh, joyfully. So, first of all, let's just say, Gina Davis is an Aquarius. Gina Davis um, obviously is snatched out of her goddamn soul. She, I don't know why she isn't one of, I think Wonder Woman 3 put her in Themyscira. Have her be like, <laughs> you know what? She should be Artemis leading the Bonham McDowell because there's a shot in uh, Thelma and Louise where she's in a bikini at the motel and you're like, where did you come from? Like, what 
<laughs> what faggot invented you? Gina Davis is a true Aquarius, okay? Because Gina Davis, obviously the Gina Davis Institute, has made critical research uh, and made an impact in the way that women are portrayed on screen, even down to the amount of women extras you will see in any set piece on any movie at any time. Gina Davis has a on-screen legacy and an off-screen legacy. And Aquarius, we are in the Aquarian era, is all about dissemination through new technology, humanitarianism, and uh, future thinking. Thelma and Louise is an Aquarian movie. I think it's also a Piscean movie, obviously. All movies are Piscean, but I think Thelma and Louise delivered consciousness, not just to its characters, but to many of us who watched it. Um, and, the, you know, when Gina Davis says, like, I'm awake, um, like, really awake, and Thelma's like, bitch, I know, that's, like, basically what happened. The, the movie is about transitioning, coming out of the closet, and, like, becoming a woman or becoming, like, a conscious soul. Um, Gina Davis is a Scorpio rising. Um, yeah, she's second house Mars and Sagittarius. So there is this sense. I, I would just say, like, I think her career is marked by... Uh, for her, it's always about pushing. And it's always about each role, I think... And League of Their Own is quite Aquarian, and each role kind of took things a little bit further and further. Susan Sarandon. God, God, God love her. Susan Sarandon, like me, is an Aquarius rising. Um, she is a Libra sun, and her Libra is in the ninth house of, like mine, of um, travel, publishing, and spirituality. And she's a... Mars and Jupiter in Scorpio, and Mars, Jupiter, and Venus in Scorpio. So it's this very intense, authentic, truthful, soulful, dark, heavy power in her 10th house of career in public roles. Um, so, yeah, you're not going to really offend her, honestly. You're not going to get to her. And honestly, like, yeah, what are her definitive roles? Thelma and Louise in that movie she won an Oscar for where she played a nun. That's a Libra for you. Um, and I thought, you know, she brought that that dark Scorpio energy to uh, Betty Davis. Um, and she's a 12th house Capricorn moon. So there's a lot of... There's a lot of hidden pain there, and I think she probably does take it seriously when people talk shit about her and think that she's, like, a right-wing terrorist or whatever, but, like, um, she's a survivor. Okay. Loving search party, generally. Um, I am reading The Multi-Orgasmic Man. We are really trying to actively get me reconnecting to some form of pleasure um, and get me out of total supination. Apparently with the multi-orgasmic man, their whole thing is that ejaculation is gauche. Apparently ejaculation is a Western thing. Uh, the Taoists don't bother pretty much. They're just like working it from within. And I am excited to connect um, as a verse... Uh, fajut with my uh, internal orgasms apparently 
when you ejaculate, you're literally like releasing life force for no reason. And you should be just like recirculating that through your entire body. I need to be like scheduling more time for cultivating pleasure um, and not just like being exhausted and then not even wanting to bother. So that's that. And I'm, I'm wondering, I'm thinking about putting myself on the market again. Uh, Dexter read my astrology. I highly recommend you get an astrology reading from me, but I also recommend you get a, an astrology reading from Dexter. You know, treat yourself to a back-to-back um, or a tag team or a, uh, a three-way. Dexter and I will, will read you together. Um, but Dexter introduced me to Placidus system and Dexter, you know, through Placidus, my Mars and Pisces is in the first house and Dexter was like, okay, Mars and Pisces, what are we talking about? We're talking about Elizabeth Taylor. We're talking about Carrie Fisher. Okay. We're talking about Marilyn Monroe. This is the bombshell placement. This is the placement of Mars, your individual sexuality as projected through the Piscean cinematic lens. And if it's in my first house, Placidus, it's like, okay, I'm born to be a sex symbol. And Dexter was like, why aren't you just embracing this? He also said that Mars and Pisces indicates foot stuff, which I'm not denying that either. So I'm just trying to become a more, you know, I listen, I'm in recovery. We, we pulled things to a stop. I'd like things to get rolling again, but I think it's kind of an inside out work. Um, where a lot of that work is being done is in the bath, naturally. Um, I gotta tell you, flower power in the East Village. You know, I'm there every week. Every week. P- people say to me, do you ever go into Manhattan? Who do they think they're talking to? Yes, I go into Manhattan. <laughs> what? You, it's just, I, the naivete, okay? It's like, what am I doing this for? All right. Yes, I go into Manhattan. At least once a week, we have to go to the Tompkins Square Library. Stop by Physical Graffiti to get tea, gorgeous tea from that Israeli woman I'm obsessed with. Maybe a stop at Spark Pretty. And of course, we get our tinctures and our herbs at Flower Power. Flower Power's bath salts, I gotta tell you, were like Isabella Rossellini Siempre Viva level. I have... They're like stones. Um, naturally, I if you can be at the Union Square Market, I, of course, highly recommend Zaddy Earth uh, bath salts. But um, the, the Flower Power ones did restore my vitality, such as it is. I'm also just realizing, like, okay, like I mentioned, there's that Cindy Sherman interview um, where they're like, what do you miss about pre-pandemic New York? And she's like, I just miss going to the movies, which... <laughs> This is a woman after my own heart, first of all. I am realizing that my life, the only time in life that I feel um, happy, okay, the only time in life I feel um, satiated or secure is in the bath, in a movie theater, in an airplane, in any sort of uh, sleeping condition where the air conditioning is um, sub-zero and there are no windows and preferably no no exits, no doors. Any sort of sarcophagus, that's where I want to be. And I'm realizing, obviously, it's very womb. It's very, it's, you know, return to the womb. He's in recovery. He Mommy issues. He's Jewish. Return to the womb. Okay, fine. But... My point still stands. Um, I I love a bath. Uh, people who live in New York who don't have a bath, I don't know how you do it. 
Um, so I'm, anyways, I'd like to be scheduling more like sexual discovery time in the bath. Um, I hope that's possible. I don't know why I'm saying that to you. Like you run my schedule. You don't, um, the person who runs my schedule, me is homicidal. God forbid I give myself anything. Okay. Um, I want to say my roommate and I watched a beautiful movie last week called Outrageous. Um, I'm really thankful to my roommate, Harry James Hansen, for introducing it to me. Um, It's from 1977, my favorite year. It is a Canadian drag movie. Um, And it's like a cult movie. And there is an innocence to it and a sweetness. And it's really, really, really special. Um, It was really beautiful. And, you know, over an earlier pandemic, my roommate and I watched a movie from 1999 called Trick. Trick is a little more contemporary. Trick is starring Christian Campbell. That's right. Nev Campbell's Twinkie brother. Um, Tori Spelling, we'll get into that. And Jean-Paul Pitoc, who plays the hot crematorium operator on Six Feet Under that Claire has sex with. Okay, Trick was very special for me. Um, Trick, it's like 1999 New York. It's this kind of like repressed Christian Campbell gay. He meets a go-go boy that he's like instantly in love with. And they just have this like long night together. And it comes from this very pre-Ryan Murphy time. And it's very, again, there is an innocence to it. And there's a sweetness to it. And there is this like, there's this earnestness to it. Classically, the movie features a remake, uh, a remix of Dreamweaver as sung by Aaron Hamilton, a.k.a. Who is Aaron Hamilton's mother? Oh, give me a fucking break. Um, Aaron Hamilton is the daughter of Carol Burnett. Thank you. Um, that's excellent. So anyways, Trick and Outrageous really made me think about um, what if gay movies were good? Um, and I think Veneno also obviously brought that to the fore, but like, what if gay love stories or drag movies, um, not just the, what if they had happy endings, but what if they were like infused with, um, joy? Uh, what if they were infused with like discovery and possibility? And I was thinking about, this is also from a, you know, Dexter is probably going to just become the co-host of this, this fucking podcast, uh, because they're so brilliant. But I was just thinking about how a lot of people born in my generation have Uranus in Capricorn. Uranus is an outer planet. It moves once every seven years. So likely if you're born in the range that I was born in, you have Uranus in Capricorn. Uranus is, as Dexter established, the queer planet. Uranus obviously rules Aquarius. Uh, Obviously, in in Germany, the uh, early 20th century gay movement, they called themselves Uranians. Uranus is the planet of awakening and higher consciousness. And Uranus acts through upheaval and revolution. So wherever Uranus is in your chart, it's meant to be shaking shit up. Our generation grew up with Uranus and Capricorn. Capricorn, obviously, as I always say, is the sign of the state, governance, uh, daddy, uh, and planning ahead. And... To me, Uranus in Capricorn is the 
the official, the the publicizing and normalizing of, of coming out of the closet, of coming out of the closet narratives being able to be uh, reckoned with and then eventually commodified by the state, essentially. So there, my issue with Uranus and Capricorn uh, as, a, as a part of that generation is, you know, it did lead... I see it as very much connected with the gleeism of of coming out and of the rigidity of coming out and of this fixation on coming out narratives that allows for less, uh, I would say, liminality and less experimentation and and it just puts this this focus on that first closet again. As I always say, we come out of many closets uh, throughout our lives. The, the sexual one is probably just the first. Um, so I do think like our generation is really fixated on the like, you come out, now you are gay, now you are this. I think the Uranus and Aquarius kids, God love them, um, who probably are also more like Pluto and Aquarius kids too, they're really, oh, no, not Pluto and Aquarius, I'm sorry, um, Neptune in Aquarius kids they're a little bit more like chill and that has its own issues um I'm reading Jeremy Atherton Lynn's book Gay Bar and his whole thing is like well it's not his whole thing but you know a lot of what he talks about is this issue of like can gay bars um the the identity required to go to a gay bar uh, as as a refuge for that for a lot of the new generation it wouldn't be a refuge it would be a trap so I understand that so there's highs and lows to both sides of it but you know it just makes me think too like and maybe this is old fashioned of me but I'm just like maybe we shouldn't have nice things like I just think maybe we shouldn't have exposure. Because I just think maybe, and this isn't interesting, but it's like, and this is obviously like what, you know, gay, neoliberal, but it's like, there's something about watching Outrageous and Trick and being like, oh, wow, this, they were just doing this for the love of it. And they weren't doing this to make it onto some like Entertainment Weekly, the top 10 gay characters on Free From this year list. And they just are what they are. They don't really fit into anything. Um, there's just this aspect of it. Like, I, I just think people get a little confused. And this comes up the most for me when people get really like, when are we going to have gay characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? And it's like, okay, well, Marvel is uh, owned by Disney, which is the most risk-averse corporation on the planet. Disney's sole priorities are selling toys and, um, like, China, like, getting Chinese audiences to spend money. And uh, classically... um, Classically, you know, when they were going to make Thor 2, uh, they had Patty Jenkins interested in directing and she said, I want to do Hella and we can get Charlize Theron. And they said, well, we can't sell girl toys and we don't want to show a boy fighting a girl. So she left and then Thor 2 sucked. And then Thor, Thor 3, they did get a Hella, but I think the movie's kind of mediocre. Anyways, 
when people are saying like, when are we going to get a character in the MCU? It's like, okay, how gay is this character going to be? You know, like, what does it even mean if a character is gay in a Disney movie? Which, by the way, I read X-Men comics, which are also owned by Disney. And actually, my point kind of stands. I think X-Men is more queer than it's ever been. Like, everyone is queer. Everyone is subtextually queer. Everyone is textually queer. Uh, More people are textually queer than ever before. Uh, But it's just kind of like... I guess I grew up in a time of coding and I like find a lot of pleasure in coding because yes, it's like not uh, as authentic and we can't like come out and say it in the same way, but also like they can't get their hands on it. You know what I mean? Like I don't really, I I do celebrate the fact every X-Man should of course be bi or pan or whatever and I love when when they all come out and I love that they're finally addressing that Kitty Pride is fully bisexual and that Rachel Summers is like her girl obviously but like I don't need a, an X-Man to come out um and I don't need like that I need I need a, a space where I feel like all of the characters just are queer by nature of the fact that they are um an oppressed um, community of people who are special and creative and that their relationships function in a non-capitalist, non-patriarchal way. That to me is more what's interesting than saying like, we're going to have a gay character maybe in the Eternals, which is by the way, C-list. So anyways, I just think this like, I need a gay person officially here isn't really interesting. It's, and by the way, like, again, going to talk shit about the Umbrella Academy. Like, I, I would rather have no gay characters at all than whatever that is, which is like that kind of bisexual character who like wears eyeliner. Um, and all of these shows think that queer people dress like pirates that's not our baggage, okay? The the pirate rockabilly thing, we have done a lot of things wrong. We are responsible for a lot of hideous fashion. The rockabilly pirate thing is not on us, okay? And I am sure the actor who plays that character on the Umbrella Academy and his wife uh, won't mind me saying that it's... I just don't find it authentic, and I assume that the writers aren't aren't even gay. Um, and this, by the way, I'm sorry, but high fidelity. I just, I really liked that show, but then they had the, the episode that was all about the gay character. And I was like, no, because I felt that, um, let me, I just want to make sure that I am getting everyone's names, right? Um, I felt that Zoe Kravitz was great. I was like, this girl in Crown Heights, I know her. I've met her. I get it. Divine Joy Randolph, absolute slay. Totally got it. The David J. H. Holmes character, and this isn't his fault, but I was like, this is not a gay person in New York. And this isn't me being like, gay people should be this way. I'm just telling you this person, I have not met him in New York. He does not exist in New York. That's okay, Um, He might exist in LA uh, and maybe that's where some more of the writers are located. I can't really speak to that. 
he does not exist in New York, nor does he exist specifically in Crown Heights at a record store. And the way they showed him meeting his gay lover at Baby's All Right, do me a favor, okay? Anyways, I'm just bringing all of this up because it's like, I don't want there to be a superhero team with one woman or one gay. I want there to be a superhero team with all women or all gays. Like, have it just be what it is and have the people who write it be all women or all queer or whatever. But it's these half measures, which to me are very Uranus and Capricorn of like, we got to get one in. See, we took a stand. We we did it for, for the state. And it's like, okay, Chastin, you know what I mean? Oh, God, are you exhausted? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to exhaust everyone with this. I don't even know where that came from. I do want to say I've been watching a lot of Pedro Almodovar, speaking of <laughs> queer film that can't be put in a box. Listen, it's obviously a lot of it is psycho, okay? I just watched uh, Law of Attraction makes it... it and, and I watched Time Me Up, Time Me Down, both of which are about Antonio Banderas, Leo. Hot. Antonio Banderas, you can't take that away from him, that he is he is a true Leo. Um, he plays like a stalker, uh, like kidnapper in both movies. Doesn't really make sense. I enjoyed Time Me Up, Time Me Down. It's problematic. Um, I am, I gotta tell you. Carmen Maura, who is the mother in Volver, she is the sister in Love Desire, and she is like the hot, chic woman in um, uh, Women on the Edge of a Nervous Breakdown. She's currently my style icon. She has a gorgeous altar in her house in Love Desire that I really want. But this is what I'll say you know, Pedro Modovar, for all of the controversy, First of all, he knows how to cast beautiful men. Secondly, when the men are having sex in his movies, it's good. Like, the hot pilot, uh, well, the hot pilots in um, my favorite, I'm so excited. Everyone this pandemic should watch I'm so excited. Nothing in this world brings me more joy. Also a little problematic. Okay, but, you know, he... He casts beautiful boys. He casts beautiful men. And when I've been watching his movies, even just like these small role young men in them, I'm like, wow, Ryan Murphy wishes because there's a real aesthetic. There's a real taste. Um, Okay. Apparently, Nicole Kidman is like in talks to play Lucille Ball. I've been talking about this with imminent future guest Samantha Stallard. Look, I gotta tell you, I am game for Kristen Stewart as Princess Diana. I just want to say, I am not game for this. Oh, by the way, I just, can I, I just read, I posted on my Instagram, but I just read the most incredible story about um, Princess Di that I just want to share really quickly. But but first, let me just say, um, Lucille Ball is not... You need, this is who we've decided it needs to be. It needs to be Amy Sedaris. Amy Sedaris needs to play Lucille Ball. I promise you she will knock it out of the park. So I am about to read just a little moment from uh, Jeremy Atherton Lynn's Gay Bar, Why We Went Out, which is uh, coming out in a week. 
I hope it's legal when I'm reading this. I think it's, I'm loving every minute of it. I really think um, you should buy it. Okay. Um, am I going to like get in trouble for this? Okay, it's fine. Um, quote, all right. The only time she was inside the RVT, Princess Diana went there explicitly to be an anonymous homosexual. It was 1988. The actress Cleo Rocos had written that she and her television co-star Kenny Everett had begun drinking peach bellinis with Diana at a brasserie uh, in Kensington earlier in the day. They ended up at Kenny's penthouse uh, up the road to watch the Golden Girls. Eventually, Freddie Mercury showed up. According to Rokos, the four of them sat on the sofa in front of the show, and Kenny turned the volume down so they could replace the dialogue with their own ribald improvisations. Diana played Dorothy. They became giddy with Diana burying her giggles in a cushion. Freddie reported they'd be going to the Vauxhall Tavern. Diana said she'd like to come along. There was much protesting as everybody feared she'd be found out there. Kenny warned it would be full of manly, hairy gay men. But Diana was resolute, and soon in a cab adorned in Kenny's fatigue jacket, leather cap and aviators when they arrived at the rvt it was full the group pushed towards the door towards the bar greeting acquaintances along the way our hearts pounded with every new leather clad hairy body that approached rocos reports but no one absolutely no one recognized diana the goal of the princess was to order a drink undetected that accomplished she was back in a taxi to kensington palace waving goodbye to the boys gathered outside okay icon kristen stewart i actually think can handle that um, again, that's from Gay Bar by Jeremy Atherton Lynn. I'm really enjoying it. Okay. Amy Sedaris should be uh, Lucille Ball. Sam and I, Sam Stallard and I were talking about how we grew up in the Nick at Night, uh, like the Nick at Night rerun era. And that, you know, I really do forget about that, but that is, and you know, topical with WandaVision, that is really actually tea for our generation because... Obviously, Bewitched was huge for me. I obviously thought Elizabeth Montgomery was the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. I thought she looked like and was my stepmom, and I just, like, wanted to be her. Okay, but Nick at Night, generally, there was this exposure to these early-era sitcoms, which I'm not saying are, like, so great, but I do think there was this idea that, like, a lot of children were watching this, like, somewhat innocent but not really adult content um and i just like that aspect and especially we of the 90s were really obsessed with being teenagers like all any of us wanted to do was be um be anyone in i know what you did last summer it's weird because i don't know what that's like for 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 the children now i my issue when i watch a pixar movie is the and I had this with Soul, is the emojification and the minionization of art. I just think everything is a little bit, a, just a little bit dialed down. It's a little bit juvenile. And I'm not meaning to say that the 90s were this like great intellectually expansive era. Okay, I watched a lot of garbage. Really. Um, and I never watched the Disney Channel, but apparently everyone in my generation did. And I'm not going to vouch for it's like, great uh in intellectual um merit but i do feel like even if you watch aladdin or a disney movie from the 90s there is this aspect of okay kids are seeing it for one reason but adults are really getting the jokes and i'm not saying that a movie like soul wasn't profound i really enjoyed it um but i do think there is this like emojification happening and i do think there is something lacking of being able to watch like 
Agnes Moorhead and Elizabeth Montgomery on a show that you don't fully understand because you're six, but having to piece it together and pretend that you understand it rather than this kind of slightly dumbed down thing. I also just want to say, like, you know, John Lasseter, okay? John Lasseter, is, did he do Skydance or did he do Pixar? Um, I just want to make sure if I'm going to talk. Oh, no. So John Lasseter created essentially Pixar um, and he ran it through 2018. He is also, I think, responsible for bringing the the Miyazaki movies to America. He's He's a full on sexual predator. So, okay. I'm not trying to like ruin Pixar. And by the way, I'm very grateful for those Miyazaki movies. I'm just saying like, you know, um, nothing is pure. So, so stop, stop. Okay. It's okay. Pixar doesn't have to be everything. Okay. You're not a child. Angel season four is absolutely spectacular. You know, once I've started facing with the help of my therapist, the kind of violation of charisma carpenter and Cordelia, it is an excellent season of television. And I think it's one of the only 22 episode seasons of TV where every episode is germane to the overall plot. And every episode ends with a gag. Um, I just finished like the three episodes where Faith comes back to town and God, Eliza Dushku is, God, damn she's good and it just like when i was watching that show i was like i i don't want them to reboot buffy but they can't do it without me so i do want them to do it but only with me um and i know exactly what it would be like i I could literally plot out five seasons if they just wrote me a check okay um and i would love to collaborate um it's been a really intense week for queer people because we lost Cloris Leachman and the goddess bunny and Sophie. Um, my roommate who introduced me to the goddess bunny, who is a drag elder icon, um, kind of, uh, just like a beautiful sexual soul. Um, my roommate introduced me to her. My roommate was very close with her. Um, and I only engaged with, the goddess bunny once and she was very lovely to me um my roommate remarked that there isn't a lot of press coverage about her death and i've gone back and forth about that and i'm kind of like good they don't deserve her like a lot of these sites that think that they're so in on queer culture i'm like you don't deserve her but i also of course want her legacy to live on forever um i did my roommate introduced me to her e-bombs world video that is what was so viral and that kind of like brought her to a lot of people's attention and there is this there's a haunting aspect to it and the the best part about it though is that bunny makes direct eye contact with the camera multiple times and i always think about when emily nussbaum described uh valerie cherish she said um in the staring contest with the camera valerie will be the last to blink and i think the goddess bunny will always be the last to blink like she she was the real deal with sophie um i have a lot to say um you know i'm not one of those people i loved her music obviously and i loved her influence and like seeing seeing immaterial performed at casa diva is like obviously 
kind of a high point in a, in a person's life. Um, but you know, for me, it, it wasn't as personally devastating, but I have been thinking about it a lot. First of all, I just want to say Sophie was a Virgo and she was a Pisces moon. Um, and I love that Virgo mutability. I love as she was, a especially Virgo is the Sphinx, right? As we always say, Virgo, uh, comes between Leo, the lion and, uh, Libra, the 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 venusian kind of goddess figure virgo is the sphinx um and i love that sophie carried that mystery with her while in her pisces moon there was this um her pisces moon and then her capricorn mars there was this aspect of being able to tap into something um unseen and invisible um which she was then able to disseminate in this very uh, mars capricorn this very structured way um obviously like her rigor was incredible but the the work itself she's venus scorpio um and moon and jupiter and pisces was really tapping into this kind of darker ocean um that that can't really be put into uh linear words i i've been thinking a lot about well, first of all, I think there's something to be said about queer lives are often incomplete. Um, I think it's like something we know, especially after AIDS, which is like most queer people have not had the chance to have like a full life and career and legacy. Queer people are often um, like dashed, thwarted, sabotaged, or murdered. And any documentary or any work on a great queer life does have this kind of element to it. And even watching like the Alan Carr and the Walter Mercado documentaries, they had much longer, richer careers, but there is this idea that like in a straight world, uh, they were on borrowed time and it was only a matter of time before some straight person would screw them out. Um, but I think also like with Sophie, Sophie obviously left a huge, legacy and a lot of it we're not even aware of and it's going to be germinating over the next 10 years so i thought of a, th- a few things the first thing i want to say is like my favorite documentary of all time which i watch every year is hodorovsky's dune hodorovsky um is a like legendary chilean filmmaker um and he made the holy mountain etc etc el topo um, and in the 70s, before Star Wars, he tried to make his own adaptation of Dune, um, and Hollywood crushed it. But the vision of it, which the documentary covers, I really think you should watch this documentary. I'm telling you it's a life changer. Um, the vision of it, the ideation of it, uh, resonated. It kind of, um, uh, in, in a harmonic way, throughout cinema to this day. It influenced all sorts of movies. So a lot of the team he put together, uh, a lot of the artwork they created, a lot of the concepts he introduced were then carried out. Uh, and, and by the way, Hodorowsky, he is an Aquarius. So in this very Aquarian wave, they were carried out, even though his project was left unfinished. By the way, I also, Hodorowsky's book on tarot, talk about life-changing. Okay. Um, so Hodorowsky's doing it. It's been a comfort for me with with. Sophie's death because I've just been able to think about um, 
ideation can be incomplete, but its resonance can then be complete. You know, a queer work or a queer life can be incomplete, and a queer legacy can be incomplete, but its its impact can be um, can be vast. And and I also was just thinking about like how this isn't new for queer people because I, I was, I remember this, I'm reading this quote from uh, gentrification of the mind by Sarah Shulman, where she says, um, this good man was a loyal friend who had impeccable taste in literature, who started a literacy program at the New York lesbian and gay community center to teach, to teach gay people how to read, who, who has a library named after him, who published some of the most interesting gay male work of our era. This guy could not really write. I feel guilty saying this because I know how much Stan wanted to be a great writer. But on the other hand, one of the paradigms we've created about AIDS is that of the dead genius. Of course, most of the people who died were not geniuses or great. They were just people who did their best or didn't even try at all. Some of them were nasty and lousy, others mediocre. Some knew how to face and deal with problems, others ran away and blamed the people closest to them. Stan was unusual because he gave so much to other people. Um, oh yeah, and then she says... Um, but as an artist, he had, as one colleague put it, an ear of lead. Yet his death and loss is just as horrible, even though he never wrote a great book and possibly never would have. So obviously, Sophie does not fit in that category. She was a genius. Her work was realized. But I do think there is this aspect of we understand what it is to have uh, a life that doesn't get finished or fulfilled and one that doesn't get the heroic treatment or ending it deserves um and i've just been thinking a lot about that and i guess a lot of why i've been enjoying like this angel rewatch is because it's what my therapist has been saying to me which is like things don't always work out the way we want them to we are not like entitled to a happy ending and often like bad things just happen um which has been kind of hard for me to accept um i watched promising young woman i really like the cast it was good that's all I'll say. Um, beyond that, um, we have a big reading coming up in next week's episode, so I hope you'll join, and um, I'm really grateful you listened. There's a few weeks left of Aquarius season, so we're really in it now, and now is a great time to be taking things to the next level and thinking bigger than ever before. So I hope that's possible for all of us. Um, thank you for listening. I will see you on the other side. The Luminaries is made with love in New York City. Consulting producer Carly Hugendijk. Music by Henry Kapersky and art by Greg Kozatek. To follow me, book a reading, that could be tarot or astrology, check me out on Instagram, david underscore odyssey, or email me, adavidodyssey at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Please like, share, rate, subscribe, etc. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.